The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred, are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. On October 25, 1989, about a month after her daughter's murder, a letter was sent to Darlene's mother in Canada from a woman named Lois Hipp, who was the Victim and Witness Services Coordinator. It was typed on a sheet with the letterhead of the state's attorney in the Third Judicial Court of Florida. I recently spoke with a friend of Darlene's and was informed that you wanted information regarding the investigation concerning your daughter's death. I know from my experiences with other homicide family members that you must feel very isolated and helpless. I spoke today with the Criminal Investigation Division of the Columbia County Sheriff's Office and was informed that although there is no actual suspect at this time, the case is being actively investigated. They have not yet heard from the crime lab that is processing the car for evidence. In addition, they plan to utilize the FBI in developing a case profile to determine if this case fits a pattern of convenience store crimes in other locations. If so, this will give them additional information to work with. I can assure you that they are pursuing every lead and piece of evidence in an effort to find out who killed your daughter. I hope this information is helpful, and I know this is a very difficult time for you, so if I can be of any additional assistance to you, please do not hesitate to let me know. As I've previously noted, there was no evidence found when they processed the car that suspect Joe had been driving when he was arrested and that appears to be the car to which she was referring in the letter. It would be months later, in a letter dated March 16, 1990 of the following year, that Darlene's mother would get more information regarding the status of her daughter's case, related to this pattern of convenience store crimes in other locations. This time the letter was sent to her by the investigator himself. I wanted to update you in reference to the status of our case. We received word from our crime lab some time ago that the stains in the vehicle were not blood, which with this information and the fact that the subject had several witnesses to show where he was at the time the crime occurred, he is not being considered a suspect at this time in this case. We have filed the VICAP with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There have been a number of other cases that have occurred similar to the type where your daughter was a victim. Myself and Lieutenant Wells have met with the Orange County Sheriff's Office in Orlando, Florida, and the Flagler Beach Police Department and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. During this meeting, we have established that there have been in excess of 10 cases similar to ours, and we are attempting to gather more information in reference to these cases. Sometime around the first part of April 1990, I and one other investigator will be traveling to New York to talk with the suspect who abducted a convenience store clerk approximately 100 miles from the Suwannee Swifty 
four days after your daughter was abducted. This suspect abducted the store clerk and she was able to escape from him in Georgia. This suspect has been identified and is currently in jail in New York after a shootout. The suspect is from Canada. I am not able to tell you any more at this time until we can gather some more information. The subject in question is not a definite suspect, but is being investigated by us at this time. I ask that you not release any of this information to anyone other than family members because of the fact that with your close proximity to New York and that the suspect is from Canada, this information being released may prevent us from obtaining any evidence or information we are seeking. If you have any further questions, or if I can be of assistance to you, please do not hesitate to contact me. Sincerely, Sergeant Randall Roberts, Investigator. Now, he mentioned VICAP, or the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which is a unit of the FBI that specializes in the analysis of serial crimes. It was fairly new at the time, created in 1985. Their early aim was to track down information on violent crime and note signature aspects related to serial offenders. The FBI explains the program in the following audio. What if there was a place where crime investigators could upload information to see if their cases might be part of a serial pattern? Such a place exists in the form of an FBI database of more than 85,000 homicides, sexual assaults, and missing and unidentified persons. The Bureau wants more investigators to know about it to help them potentially make connections between cases. To promote awareness about the database and to grow the repository, the Bureau's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP, conducts training sessions with law enforcement agencies across the country. VICAP is unique in the sense that we are looking for those different cases that tend to lend themselves to a serial nature. These could include cases where offenders leave behind unique signatures. Was the victim posed, for example? Were items taken from the scene? When they come across or they have one of these types of cases, they place it in VICAP. It opens up the, the opportunity for them to use our resources, the, the VICAP crime analysts, so that we can do the analytical work for them, provide the agency with investigative leads so they can hopefully bring their case to resolution. At a recent training in Scottsdale, Arizona, about 30 homicide investigators, crime analysts, and police administrators logged into the VICAP system. The secure, web-based platform prompts users through about 100 questions, gleaning investigative details that could be the keys to solving a case or tying several cases together. Well, I think the biggest advantage to VICAP program is the intelligence and the sharing of the information. Thomas Kelly, chief of the Apache Junction Police Department in Arizona, has been using and promoting the database for years. He said the ability to cross-match your own unique case against thousands of others is an invaluable tool. The VICAP program is the one that you want to at least get the information out because now you have access to X number of thousands of other crimes or connections and possible leads that you might be able to put that case into the system and get a hit or a ping that your case might be connected to a case in Illinois or New York or wherever. There's constant connections being made on a daily basis. Every time a new case comes in, there's another potential that could be connected somewhere. By day's end, each of the new VICAP users had entered an open case into the system, expanding its capabilities. T.R. Davidson, a detective with the Scottsdale Police Department, isn't new to the system, 
His department entered case information into VICAP about the murder of a 31-year-old female shortly after her death in February 2015. He's hoping VICAP might find links to his case's unique set of circumstances. There may be that other case out there that, that we may come across that will allow us to link these cases and develop new information, uh, hopefully leading to the, uh, an offender and, and solving this crime. VICAP operates within a behavioral analysis unit of the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Use of the VICAP database, and by extension the FBI's crime analysts, is free. An investigator can enter a case in as little as 30 minutes. VICAP officials say that's a small investment to help break a case. The sooner that they put the case in, then the sooner that the resources that VICAP can bring to the table and assist in the investigation and provide investigative leads, uh, it just benefits their agency. And VICAP is not here to try to take over the investigation for them. We want to merge together, partner with them, provide the investigative leads, and bring the case to a resolution. In the letter that he sent to Darlene's mother, Sergeant Roberts referred to a new suspect they were looking into, a man I would learn was named Raymond Muscone. They believed it was possible that some of these similar unsolved abduction robberies might be related, the city of Flagler Beach put out a bolo regarding the robbery of the Jumping Jack food store on September 22nd, four days after Darlene went missing. Suspect described as 35 to 40-year-old, white male, 5'10", light brown hair, 170 pounds, neatly trimmed beard, thin face, full lips, bump on nose, hairy chest, wearing a gold flat-top ring with raised initials on the right ring finger white short-sleeved shirt with black one-half-inch stripes, an emblem on the left pocket, boot-cut acid-washed blue jeans, dark gray loafers with a weave design on the toe, and a members-only black jacket. The suspect was seen in and out of numerous stores, casing stores prior to our incident. At approximately 9 p.m., the suspect entered the Jumping Jack convenience store and pulled out a large Rambo-styled knife robbing the store, and taking a 19-year-old female clerk from the store. The suspect got approximately $250 in cash, a six-pack of canned Coors beer, and a carton of Marlboro cigarettes. The victim was forced into the vehicle, a 1978 to 1990 Ford pickup truck, dull gray or primary gray in color, with a white topper on the rear of the truck with solid windows. Vehicle has a cracked front right windshield. Victim taken to the state of Georgia and raped several times. Victim was able to escape after the suspect got his vehicle stuck on a wooden road in Fort Stewart, Georgia, just off I-95. Suspect had trouble with English and appeared to be French-Canadian and stated that he was going to Frontier, Canada. Attached to this was a Florida criminal activity bulletin, and it noted that it had been determined that Moscone was in New York City over the 1988 Christmas period and then had gone to Florida and was subsequently arrested on an outstanding Gainesville Police Department warrant for violation of probation. He was in possession of heroin at the time of his arrest, and he had received a prison sentence, but he escaped from the New River Correctional Center in Rayford on July 17, 1990. Moscone's M.O. in Canada was to enter banks when there were no customers, jump the counter, push employees around, and loudly shout and swear. Sometimes he was armed with a knife and then he emptied money from drawers into a plastic bag and escaped on foot. 
He had passed Florida arrests for burglary, larceny, theft, breaking and entering, aggravated battery, aggravated assault on a police officer, resisting arrest, unlawful flight, possession of cannabis, probation violations in reference to possessions of cocaine, marijuana, paraphernalia, and heroin. Yeah, this was a frisky little booger, huh? There was also information on Moscone's girlfriend, Yvonne Simone Deneuve, a.k.a. Yvonne Fassa, who was a white female from Canada, wanted by the Indian River County Sheriff's Office in Vero Beach for a probation violation as well as the Alachua County Sheriff's Office on a larceny charge. She had priors for possession of heroin and marijuana, was known to use false identification, and was described as having needle tracks and driving a rusted-out late-model brown cougar with black stripes that was potentially the vehicle used in assisting Moscone's escape from the New River Correctional Institution. Metropolitan Toronto Police were also looking for her. A March 15, 1990 supplemental report lists four names of missing women. In addition to the woman who had escaped the Jumping Jack convenience store abduction, plus Darlene, for a total of six. And they seemed to imply that they were looking at Moscone for all of them at that time. A discussion was held regarding the possibility of one particular person being responsible for the kidnappings of convenience store clerks in the southeastern United States. We have determined that there have been the same types of crimes at more than 10 locations. Several of the well-known reports are listed as follows. Columbia County Sheriff's Office, Darlene Messer, Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office, Diana Callahan, Orange County Sheriff's Office, Deborah Poe, Raleigh Police Department, North Carolina, Laurie White, Louisville Police Department, Kentucky, Angela Hilbert. All of the above females, with the exception of the clerk in Flagler Beach, have been killed or are still missing. The clerk from Flagler Beach jumped out of the suspect's truck while going through Georgia. Our department first learned about the suspect we are presently looking at through the FDLE Criminal Activity Bulletin. The bulletin showed the suspect, Raymond J. Muscone, white male, to be a violent person who was involved in robberies and known to carry a knife. The victim of the abduction in Flagler Beach advised that when the suspect took her from the store, he raped her twice and threatened her often with a large knife. After pulling into a wooded area off of I-95, the suspect was on the Fort Stewart Reservation. The suspect got stuck in the woods in the pickup truck. The victim jumped from the truck and ran through the swamp and got away from the suspect. The suspect got pulled out and was gone when military police arrived. The victim picked out the suspect from a photo lineup. The victim has drawn a picture of the knife and it could be consistent with at least nine of the injuries sustained by our victim. The above suspect has a criminal history from Gainesville, Florida area. The victim's girlfriend also has a criminal history from Gainesville and was reported to have been driving a vehicle that somewhat matches the description of the vehicle used in the homicide in Columbia County. Now, first of all, they don't even really know what vehicle was used in a homicide in Columbia County. They have two different vehicles, neither of which they know for sure whether they are related to the crime or not. But to this point, the Flagler Beach victim who had gotten away was the only one already associated with Muscone. Obviously, this threat of investigation was prior to the animal predation in Darlene's case because of that knife information. Him saying that the knife could be consistent with at least nine of the injuries sustained by Darlene. All indications we now have are that they're suggesting blunt force trauma, and those injuries on the hand, specifically the through-and-through ones, were more likely due to animal predation. 
But here we have a perfect example of how difficult it can be to develop a suspect when your understanding of mode and manner of death may not be correct. The investigator's report then goes on to say there is a very good chance that the abductions could be related, and it outlines some of the reasons why, quote, Raymond Muscone is being considered as a primary suspect. These bullet points are typed in all caps, which almost seems to convey within them some sort of desperate hope that they finally landed on a viable suspect. He has an extensive criminal history with violence included. He is known to commit the majority of his crimes with a knife. His girlfriend operates a vehicle that is similar to the suspect vehicle in this crime. He is known to have been within 100 miles of Lake City four days after the homicide in Columbia County. He is known to have a gun. Highway 100 starts in Columbia County within one-tenth of a mile from the Swanee Swifty store and ends in Flagler Beach, where the other clerk was abducted. The suspect is familiar with Florida. The knife and handle that was drawn by the Flagler victim appears that it could have been responsible for the wounds that Darlene Messer received. Then the all-caps format continues as if the next quotes were part of the same list of bullet points, but they appear to actually be a list of things that needed to be done on Darlene's case, rather than among the list of reasons why Muscone was a viable suspect. This formatting error only heightens the sense of desperation, particularly when it veers almost comically into a category that I would call gripes about another law enforcement agency. The suspect has been interviewed in reference to the crimes that occurred in New York by the New York City Police Department. The suspect has talked to the police somewhat about the incidents that occurred in New York. The suspect has not been interviewed in reference to any of the crimes that have occurred in Florida or other states. The New York City Police Department is so large that you cannot get a straight answer as to who is working the case and when, or if the detectives there will even do the legwork. The suspect's vehicle needs to be processed for trace evidence for all the other departments concerned. The suspect needs to be interviewed for all the other departments concerned. Need to locate where the suspect was staying prior to his capture to look for any evidence in our crime such as earring, shoe, necklace, or knife. The suspect's sister and the other family in New Jersey and New York need to be interviewed. I do not feel that the above can be done without traveling to New York to either make the case or to eliminate the suspect due to the amount of red tape involved in trying to get help with such a large agency. Sergeant Randall C. Roberts, Criminal Investigations Division. So a couple things I noticed. Not only does he talk about the knife, but in his original list of things that made Moscone a primary suspect, he is known to have a gun. And so it makes me wonder if Darlene actually had a gunshot wound at the back of her neck or not. The ME report said she did but the forensic anthropologist's report only noted the two round circular wounds with underlying fractures, one inch in diameter, to have been the only wounds of homicidal means, and everything else was animal predation. Now, the report that I received from Columbia County Sheriff's Department has a separate file titled Suspects, and inside Raymond Muscone's subfile were copious printouts of similar female cashier abductions, so many, in fact, that my first thought was, holy shit, ladies, do not ever seek employment at a convenience store where you will ever have to work alone, like ever. Seriously, ixnay on the convenience store K. It is so prevalent, it might as well be that females are what's being shopped for at these convenience stores. Once I started looking into the names on that list that were possibly linked to Darlene's case 
and related to Raymond Muscone, I learned that the information we know today about them is vastly different than the initial reports. For instance, Angelia Hilbert, an early case summary dated October 19, 89, says that she was a 22-year-old white female convenience store clerk kidnapped from where she worked in Louisville, Kentucky on June 3, 89. But today, the summary on the Charlie Project page said that she left the Gulf Service Station at Bardstown Road on June 3rd. She was allegedly following her parents to Owensboro, Kentucky, where they were moving, and she was last seen driving a gray four-door 1982 Pontiac in the Dry Ridge Road area at midnight. She never arrived at her destination, and her car was found abandoned later. A quick scan of social media accounts and the comments suggest that she had been having issues with a spouse and most appear to think that he may have had something to do with it. In 1990, Deborah Poe had worked at a Circle Case store where she was abducted. She disappeared on February 4, 1990. Her boyfriend says that he saw her at the store around 1 a.m., and a friend who drove by saw her around 3 a.m., standing behind the counter. The Circle K store clerk was gone by 3.15, replaced by an unknown man acting as if he worked there, according to a witness. The mystery clerk was described as a young man with long, stringy black hair. He was wearing a black t-shirt with the word Megadeth and the image of a dragon spitting fire. According to deputies, the man calmly operated the cash register, checked out customers, and made change for them, and then suddenly he disappeared as well. Around 2002, authorities said that they had a suspect in Poe's disappearance, but they refused to publicly identify the individual. They had, however, searched an area in Orange County, near State Road 417. Then there was Donna Callahan, and she worked at the Junior Food Store in Gulf Breeze, Florida. She went missing on August 6, 1989. Also, no signs of a struggle, and her purse, keys, and car were all left behind. What started as a tip from inmates housed with William Alex Wells in 1993 ended with two stepbrothers charged with her murders. At first, Wells' stepbrother, Mark Allen Reeb, tried to save his own ass by helping police search their family property for Donna's remains, but it was unsuccessful. He moved away to Illinois, but police kept questioning him because he insisted that his stepbrother was a serial killer. On the eve of his own trial, Wells apparently decided he wasn't going down alone, and he implicated his stepbrother saying that they went to the convenience store together to rob the store and abducted Donna at gunpoint. He said that Reeb strangled her in the back seat and then he disposed of her. Wells led police to her remains. Both men eventually received life in prison. I can go on and on about the cases that they thought were related, but in the end, none of them, including Darlene's, were in any way associated with Raymond Moscone. It appears that what occurred when their leads ran dry, as often happens, Law enforcement started to look at similar crimes in and around the area in the hopes that they might find a serial offender that they could look at for the murder of Darlene. And I can understand the inclination. It certainly would be rather fulfilling to be able to close a whole handful of cases in one fell swoop. But it's rarely that easy, and none of that panned out. Other than Moscombe, there were a few other suspects in Darlene's case file most of which I wouldn't even call suspects at all, just random people that they looked at because the well was coming up about as dry as a pot smoker's yawning mouth. A kid named Casey was looked at because an Unsolved Mysteries viewer thought he looked like the composite drawing associated with Deborah Poe's case that was featured on the show along with a brief blurb about Darlene's case. The handwritten notes about the tip say that the subject told her son and others that he had killed someone in Florida. Quote, he works out, claims to be in martial arts, 
has been in a mental institution, has weird habits, is active after midnight, and carries different weapons, including a spear, homemade nunchucks, and other martial arts weapons. It also says he, quote, completely fits physical description of subject on Unsolved Mysteries, and the witness has seen him wearing skull ring and earrings. It also notes that it is rumored that there are guns in the house. I actually laughed out loud when I read that description, mainly because I flashed back to the stupid weapons, similar to this that my oldest son used to make when he was into that Legends of Zelda game, where Link ran around in the green outfit and the hat. My mom made him a replica outfit one Christmas. It was fucking adorable. So the investigator in Darlene's case did his due diligence and went to check it out. He ended up meeting the kid and doing an interview with a witness. It's all patently absurd, but my dear listeners, you need to hear this. And let me tell you why. You need to hear this because you need to understand the shit that cops have to sift through when they're doing an investigation like this. Just tell me everything you can about when you first met Casey. Okay, he was going out with my friend. Uh, I don't know if this was a recording. Let me put you on speakerphone so I can record it, okay? All right. Okay, let's try that. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, tell me everything that you think might be important, and then I'll ask you some questions. Well, when he first started going out, I asked him if he had a picture, because I'm in cosmetology and I needed a picture to determine how many perms I had to use on his hair. He said, I don't have any pictures. And I'm like, well, how come you don't have any pictures, you know? And and it's like something everybody carries, a picture. And he said, well, because I don't. I don't like having pictures of myself. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I go, well, what about the picture of you and Klimby? Because Klimby was his dog. And he goes, well, I don't like giving that out. And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, I, I don't like anybody having pictures of me. And I'm like, well, we're going out. And I'm supposed to have a picture of you. And he said, I'll look for it. I said, it was on your dresser. And he said, yeah, but I moved it. And I don't know where I put it. I got it like two days later after begging him and everything, and I showed my teacher, you know, and I found out how many perms I had to use. Anyway, the next day we were going downtown, and he said, well, I'm going to shop here. And I'm like, why? You know, because he was really acting weird, and we started going out, and he wasn't like that. And so suddenly he stopped, and he backed up into this corner, and just before we got downtown, and I was like, well, are you going to come? And he said, no, you just go on, and I'll meet you. And I was like, no, we're supposed to be walking together. I'm not going to walk up there alone, because it was like about a mile away, you know, and he goes... Well, I'm going to go a different way. And I said, no, you're going to go with me, right? Because we're going to stop at the store. And he goes, will you go to the store and I'll pick you up there? And I go, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I walked back, you know, and I got in where he was. And he goes, I don't have any identification on me or nothing. And I was like, well, we weren't going to buy beer or nothing. But I was like, why are you saying that? And he said, I don't keep identification on me. And I was like, why? And he goes, because I don't. And I go, well, how are you going to get beer if you want to get beer? Or how is anybody going to tell who you are? And he goes, well, that's the thing. They're not going to. And I was like, okay. I wasn't thinking anything of it, you know. I just, you know. And, and so he just started acting weird. Plus, he, he says that he took martial arts. Uh-huh. He's got, like, lots of weapons. And he gave, like, something like his sword to a friend and some of them he gave away. But he has other ones. And, and there's the beer and stuff. He had, like... The other night, he had a gun in his house, and because his mom was living with him, and he's had... I'm not sure if she took it out of the house when he threatened me or not, you know, but... I understand that he used to live in Lake City. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that he did. Well, see, he just told me that he lived in Florida, and I don't know which part of Florida. I just know he lived in Florida. Do you know his dad's last name? Uh, no, he told me his dad died. What did he tell you about someone being killed in Florida? 
he just said someone was killed and I was like who and he goes I don't know and I was like well you should know you know and he was like I can't tell you and I was like then don't tell me then don't tell me you know about it we're pretty close and I think you should be able to tell me but he wouldn't tell me he just told me that he did he just told you that he killed someone in Florida yeah did he say if it was male or female uh no he just said that his dad had molested his sister and he said that he had to go out of Florida because he said that his dad was blaming it on him and his dad was the one who did it or something, but he said that he had to leave Florida and he was never allowed back in Florida again. Okay. Then in that same breath, he said that his dad had died, so, you know, I didn't really understand him after that. That was pretty strange, huh? Yeah, I mean, at first he was, like, really nice and he wanted to take things, like, really slow, you know, and then he said, you know, like, men talk, and it was like, oh, I love you, but then I called him the other night and I was like, uh, I need to talk to you, and he's like, why? And I go, because I do, and he goes, well, I'm cooking right now, and I'm like, I don't hear it. And he put the phone up by the stove and he said, I'm cooking. And I was like, okay, well, will you call me back? And he goes, sure. So I waited like an hour and a half and he never called me. And so I called him back and then he's like, what do you want? And I was like, you told me that you were going to call me back. And he was like, yeah, I did, didn't I? And I go, yeah, you did. And then he was like, I'm sorry, I'm tired. I want to go. And I'm like, no, you're going to talk to me. And then I was like really mad, you know, I was like swearing and everything. And he goes, then I said, well, Case, you know how you acted the other night? I really didn't like it. And he goes, me acting? And I go, yeah, you acting. And he goes, I wasn't acting in any way. And I go, you know how you were acting. And I mean, it isn't like you because you never treated me like crap. And now all of a sudden you are. And he goes, I'm not treating you like crap. And by the way, if I ever see you stop at my door again, I'll stick a gun to your head, you bitch. And I was like, whoa. And I was like really mad. And then I blew up and I go, well, if I ever see you come around me, I'll put a gun to your head. I mean, I would never do it, but I was so mad and it just came out and all that and I just go well goodbye and I hung up the phone then see I never knew anything about the unsolved mysteries or anything about you know I told my mom he told me and everything and that was after we had gotten in you know and I was gonna go out with him and she didn't want me to go out and because she didn't want me to tell him and then he would know that I knew about it and do something have you ever seen him wearing a skull ring a skull ring hmm no the only jewelry I ever think I ever seen him wearing was the jewelry that I gave him have you ever seen him wearing a Megadeth shirt? Megadeth? Yeah. Hmm, I think so. Do you remember what color it was? I think it was black. Okay, does he have an earring? He has earrings I gave him. Is his ear pierced? Yes. Have you ever seen him with a cross earring? Uh, no. I've seen him wear ones like knife earrings and, uh, things, the ones that I gave him and... I don't think I've ever seen him with a cross. He never would narrow down who he killed or what sex they were? No. He has tattoos. Where are his tattoos and what are they of? Okay, there's one on his lower, like underneath the, under there, and he just got that one, and then the one of that Harley Davidson thing, that one symbol. Then he's got one other, um, his other arm, and that one's a peace symbol of a ring, or the kind of ring that I gave him, and... And then he said he's had that one for a long time and he had just gotten it darkened. Okay. Then he has one that's from a group that he was in and everybody has the same tattoo on like a hook and then it's got... Yeah, okay. Did he ever say anything about what his father's name was? I know he's deceased. No, I never asked him. He just said that his father was a raper. Okay. Did he talk about the time that he lived in Florida? He said that he was going out with a girl there, and that he loved the girl a lot, but that he had to leave because his dad raped somebody, and he was getting accused of it, and he said that he really loved her. Did he have any weird habits? Yeah, like he would not go outside. Well, 
he would go, like, he would go outside with somebody. He's like, he wouldn't go downtown hardly at all. And when he did, he had to be with the gang, you know, the tough guys. He didn't want to be seen with me. I mean, it was, like, really weird. He likes sharpening knives and licking his weapons. Um, He likes it in the cold better than the hot, you know. He doesn't like riding in cars. He doesn't? Well, even if he does ride in the car, you can't go fast because he gets sick. I was going to get my license and stuff and take him riding with me, you know. And he goes, well, if you go fast, I'll get sick. And then me and my friend and everybody went riding, and he wouldn't go. He didn't want to get in the car, and, and it was like, come on, I'll drive. And he goes, I don't want to get in the car. And then it took me almost an hour to get him in the car. We're all right, then. Is there anything else that you can think of? Um, he likes his hair really long. His hair is, like, really, really long. Does he lift weights? Yeah, he lifts weights almost constantly, and he has a, um, he has one of them punching things. Um, it's like a bag, and he lifts uh, weights, and um, he works out constantly all the time. Does he work anywhere? No, he's on Social Security. He's what? I think he's on Social Security or SSI. Oh, really? What for? Because he... Oh, gosh, I think... I don't... Do you think it might be because his dad died? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought it was because he had some... Well, I don't know that he used to go to, like, but some special school, and I think he, it was because he was slow or something. Have you ever known him to be in any kind of mental institution? Oh, uh, okay. He was in this, like, um, hospital... My ex-boyfriend was in this hospital unit, and Casey was in the hospital with him, and he always told me, he said, he is really weird, and I don't care if you don't want to be with me. I don't want you being with him because I don't want you to see you hurt and all this stuff. And I was like, why? Why do you say this? And he goes, because he's weird, but, you know. Do you know which one? Huh? What'd you say, Mom? She says his mother had him committed to a mental hospital. Do you know his mother's name? Yeah, her name was Char. Char? Yeah. Do you know her last name? Um, oh my gosh, she told me. Casey told me, and I can't remember, but she's going to get married soon, and it's going to be Carr, I think. Char Carr? Well, it will be after she gets married. Okay, um, would you be willing to talk to me if I have to come up there? Yeah. Have you ever known him to do anything illegal up there? Uh, I know, um, that he goes in the city and steals a lot, you know, and that it's like, he tells me that they give stuff to him, like this one lady, um, and then, he, well, he puts something in his pocket, you know, and then they, they don't do nothing about it. I know he got drunk a couple times, too, and, and, and because the next morning I went to his house and he had a hangover and he puked all over. Okay. I don't know if, like, his weapons are illegal or not that he made. Okay, I've, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and turn this tape recorder off. So anyway, that happened. You might have noticed the mention of the Megadeth t-shirt, and that was regarding the composite drawing associated with the Deborah Poe case. The only possible association with Darlene Messer's abduction and murder was that Casey had allegedly told people that he murdered someone in Florida. But remember, law enforcement is trying to link all of these cases together, or they were at the time. So the investigator met with Casey himself, and afterward he typed up this very short supplemental report. The subject arrived at the police station accompanied by his mother. Upon talking to the subject, we learned that he was a juvenile and that at the time he was living in Florida, he would have been 15 years old. Further interview with the subject revealed that while his face somewhat looks like the picture composite, the rest of his body does not. The subject is overweight, underage, and is partially mentally impaired. The subject told us that he was the leader of a gang of 100 ninjas and that he constantly works out with nunchucks, 
spears, and other types of ninja weapons. During this interview, it was quickly determined that this subject was not old enough to be involved in either case and that he didn't live near where either crime occurred. The next two suspects in the folder marked suspects had even thinner threads of likely involvement than poor Casey, if you can believe that. A woman was arrested for fraudulently using the credit card of a man that she used to live with. And during that investigation, the victim mentioned that that woman might have information that could help police make some drug arrests and possibly information on one of their unsolved homicides, namely Darlene Messer. Apparently, this woman once told the victim that two men named Wayne and Dennis had something to do with the murder of the store clerk and that one of the men had made a statement to her saying that if the police looked into the creek where her body was subsequently located, they would find her. And voila, a suspect was born, or rather two suspects. It didn't take too much research for the investigator to learn that one of the two was in prison at the time, and the other appeared to have nothing to do with it either, other than he had crossed paths with this woman, who now had her victim in the credit card fraud, a guy she used to live with, helping her use the fake information to leverage her out of the hot spot that she was in. There are a couple more names in the suspect category that we've yet to cover fully, and that's because I can't. I'm talking about George and Linwood, the corrections officer who Darlene alleged had been harassing her and the peeping Tom. I've basically told you all that I know about them based on the information that I got from police. I'd say that these two are much more in the realm of what I would consider actual possible suspects, because you can immediately see where there would be motive involved. Darlene had complained to law enforcement about both men bothering her. I went over Linwood in a couple of the other episodes. He was the black male peeping Tom who lived behind her in the apartment. George is someone that I would definitely want to check into, and I have almost no information on him, which is troubling from the get-go. I would like to have at least seen a witness statement from him. I mentioned him early in the podcast because his name was attached to one of the police reports Darlene had filed. He was a vocational teacher at Florida State Prison who Darlene alleged was harassing her. Remember, that's the prison where her husband, Charles Messer, was incarcerated. The date on that report that she filed against George is August 28, 1989, which is less than a month before she was murdered, which kind of adds to its troubling nature. I received no interview associated with George, and there was scant information about him in the pages that I was sent. Aside from the police report Darlene had filed herself, and this line, quote, Sergeant Wells interviews Mr. George at Florida State Prison, and he stated that he does not know the victim and that he was not in Columbia County when the incident occurred. But there were multiple witnesses that said Darlene told them about George bothering her, including her incarcerated husband. Here's the text of the police report that she filed on August 28, 1989. Darlene Messer reported that George, a corrections officer at Florida State Prison, has asked her to go out with him several times. She has refused to go out with him. He told her that if she did not go out with him for more than coffee, he could make it hard for her husband, Charles Messer, who is an inmate at Florida State Prison where he works. She has also received several phone calls at home, and she believes that George is the one making them even though he has not given his name. She does not want any action taken against George at this time, but if the harassment continues or he starts to harass her husband in prison, she wants to file charges. 
The report notes that at least one of these incidents of alleged harassment occurred at the Sewanee Swifty and had got on for about two weeks, verbally, in person, and by phone, and that George, the white male, was harassing her because, quote, the victim refused to go out with him on a date. One of Darlene's friends came into the criminal investigation division after her abduction and relayed that Darlene had been somewhat concerned about the telephone calls that she'd been getting from the unknown caller. Darlene's answering machine tape was recovered early on, and it included a message that read, You don't know who this is, but I'll call you. Sunday, about 11. Another of the witnesses that the police report said had mentioned George was a man who was initially interviewed because a friend of Darlene's had told investigators that Darlene had introduced him to her once at the local bar, Tom's Place Lounge. When police contacted him, he said that he had known Darlene for about a year and she told him about the guard named George who was harassing her. He said that once George came into Tom's place and Darlene got scared when she saw him. On another occasion, the last time this witness had seen Darlene, three days before the abduction and murder, she mentioned to him that George had said that, quote, if he couldn't have her, no one would. She also mentioned to this witness about a black male that had been bothering her, and that would be Linwood. So I tracked down this witness, and here's my conversation with him. Okay, you said you had lived in that area, but you didn't remember. Um, I mean, I don't, that name just don't, I mean. She was abducted and murdered uh, from a Suwanee Swifty store in 1989. And uh, that's the case I'm researching. And your name was in one of the reports as someone who gave a little bit of information. It's not much, but I just started, I'm just starting. So I'm trying to contact everyone whose name's in there that might be able to um, help me. Does that ring a bell at all? She was married to an inmate um, named Charles Messer. I guess they were pen pals first, but um, does any of this ring a bell at all? Yes, ma'am, it does. Oh, good. Would you be willing to um, answer a couple questions? I mean, y'all know who killed her. Well, I, I'm just going through reports. I know what the reports show. Who do you... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. You tell me what it says. I mean, ma'am, I mean, I'm... I, I'm kind of just... Well, it's been that yeah. many years ago. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. Let me just tell you what, basically, I got the whole police report. But the problem is they don't have evidence to link a perpetrator to the crime. They think there's a possibility that there were two black males that came into the store and robbed it and killed her. The problem is their DNA is not in that store. Their DNA is not where it should be if they're the person that killed her. There were a couple people bothering her at the time. Um, so th that's what your uh report was about it was about a let me see um all right it said let, let me read it to you that way you know what the report that i'm reading from is that okay okay all right yes, all right it says i talked with on december 1st 89 and he stated that he had known darlene messer for approximately a year and that she told him about a guard named harassing her and that on one occasion while they were at tom's lounge the guard came into the bar and he stated that messer uh, and um, got scared when she saw him. He further stated that the last time um, he saw the victim was approximately three days before the abduction homicide at the station across from the VA hospital and that she mentioned to him that he had told her that if he could not have her, then no one could. And then it also goes on to say that she mentioned a black male who was bothering her. Okay. So there well, were two let me people. Say this. Uh -huh. I never spoke to that lady about anybody harassing her or bothering her especially not somebody from a 
from the institution or a guard. I mean, I don't know where that came from at all. You just said that you read my statement and I said that? Yes, that's exact. I read exactly from the statement with your name on it, yes. And who took that statement, ma'am? Uh, I did not know. Randy, I did not never say that. Randy Roberts. Oh, no. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Well, that's what the statement says. So you don't remember anything about a... a, a no, I, re, I, I do remember um, um, meeting that lady because she worked at the convenience store. Right. I mean, that's where I, I had met that lady, but never in, uh, you know, the... So what, I, I, what about this Tom's Place Lounge? Does that ring a bell? Because it's mentioned a couple times in the report as somewhere she went, and that's um, that's where it sa- says that you were introduced at Tom's Place Lounge. Does that ring a bell? Damn, I worked there for a little while. Oh, did you? See, I'm not from uh, that area, so I'm just going by what's yes, in the report ma'am. to get, but, uh, getting it. Well, so you don't remember the one at all. Do you remember the blackmail? There was a blackmail that might have been bothering her? I mean, there's literally reports on both of these men from different... She wrote a, a police report about bothering her. Three or four people from that lounge had heard... She had told a lot of people about both men. So those, you know, those are both people I would be looking into, but they're neither one of them the people that the police were really looked... I mean, they looked at them, but... Uh, no, ma'am. I mean, I remember <clears throat> they said that somebody had came in there <clears throat> like when the store was closing. Looked like there was a robbery. Right. Stuff was in disarray, strung around in the store. And then they said that they had found her body going to towards, I guess, towards Lake Butler. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, other than seeing her maybe a few times at the store, I don't even really recall, you know, seeing her at Tom's, um, you know, you know, 30 years ago, I've uh, been in, uh, <clears throat> last year I got in an accident, had a bad concussion. Okay. But, but I, like I say, but I still don't, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't, that girl's name. Like I say, the only thing uh, <clears throat> that I remember from her was, you know, meeting her at that store, because uh, she, she was an employee there. Um, we, I think we came through town that night or the next night or something. Somebody said that the store had, had gotten robbed and they had abducted the girl. <clears throat> then I was told she had a shotgun wound to the chest and they found her like in Deep Creek, no, no, not Deep Creek, uh, Swift Creek, or that little bridge there, whatever it's called. Right. And 
and other than that, ma'am, I really don't. That's that's about it. I mean. So when I first called you and you said they know who did it, was there gossip going around town about who who literally did it? Uh, what I was told, uh, uh, and, and like you say, and it really wasn't from nobody that that I would take to the courthouse. You know what I'm saying? Right. But I, I think it was just like one of the guys from the bar. Uh, said that uh, uh, oh man Jesse James that's the name of the, the person supposedly mm-hmm. um, who was he he was uh, I, I guess he was from somewhere Lake City Lulu Lake Buller I mean uh a bar regular but from my understanding from what they said uh, um, that you know and and I think this guy's in prison now for actually killing Harold Biddix in Lake Butler at the bar that night that same night no uh, let, let me say that part no but I don't know what night right if it was a week later or if it was the next night or i mean so sometime but, in that general vicinity so you're saying he it was alleged or gossip around town let's just put it that way that someone named literally named jesse james like real his real name was jesse james yes ma'am oh gosh and so he was a bar regular and and then was there a motive attributed to it like why he did it like what uh, they said he was a, a crackhead. Oh, okay. So money to the robbery. And uh, so, uh, but who say the name again of that other victim so I can research him? That you said he may may be in prison for killing already. The the gentleman that was in Lake Butler that killed at the bar was named Harold Biddix. Biddix. Okay, I'll look uh, that up. Yes, ma'am. That might be helpful. So, yes. Research that part, yep. and I think it'll tell you any part of that other that you need to know about him. Okay, well, that's definitely helpful. See, you didn't think you had anything helpful. That is definitely helpful, because his name is not mentioned at all in this report. I would have recognized Jesse James. Later, I would turn to Google, and I would find the name of Harold Lee Biddicks. But we'll get to that in the next episode. Also, hello, Jesse James. Really? Anything else that you recall specifics about it besides him and, um, is he a black male or a white male? White male. Okay. Um, anything else that you can think of about, you know, that now that pops into their mind, now that I've got you rattled here, you know, rattled your brain a little bit about it. Is there anything that, that else that you can think of? No, no, ma'am. I know it's... Sometimes when people can't figure out really what they want to know, they put... They presume things, and so I don't want to put, I don't want to presume something in your head that I have no earthly idea about, except what I do remember hearing. And that's absolutely, that's how I will couch this as, this is what the gossip, uh, you know, was going around, and it would have been, basically, I just want to get a feel for 
what the locals were hearing because sometimes there's truth in that and sometimes there's not. And sometimes when you start hearing, you know, what the locals were saying, it, you, you realize why cases, you know, maybe went astray because the police maybe were looking in the wrong spots. You know what I mean? Who knows? So I just kind of want to, I'm, right. I'm going to track down everybody that I've, you know, that I can. Yes, well, I'm going to look up that name that you gave me. It is curious to me that, that they have written down that you mentioned about the guard. I don't know anything about it. I got to see what, uh, I only know that the police interviewed him one time, the sergeant, and he said he was not even in Columbia. He wasn't in town at the time. So that's why I had initially called you because I thought, well, that's kind of sketchy. Like, how do you say you don't know someone when she's written a report on you and all this stuff, you know? So you don't, uh, you don't remember that at all. You don't remember that conversation I, at all. I really don't, ma'am. I mean, okay. you know, and I work at the prison, too. What, you did? Wait, what? So, <laughs> so okay, you kind of buried but the lead there. I don't know that guy. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't know his name. I don't know him. So the name doesn't even ring a bell to you? No, ma'am, it doesn't. And he would have been, did you work at the at that time or later? I worked there, I worked in FSB from like 82 to 85, okay, three so, years, I think. I see, so you already gone then, you were gone when this would have happened in 89, and you don't remember his name, huh? Yes, ma'am. All right. And well, like I say, probably if anything, I was either probably working at the bar, It said that you were working at the bar, uh, let's see, no. Okay, it said when they talked to you in December of 89 that you had known Darlene for about a year. And I think she'd only been in town for about two, so one or two. And that's, and that you, that she told you about this guard harassing her. And that um, one occasion while you guys were at the bar, um, he came in and she got scared. Um, it doesn't say that you worked there, though, so maybe this was prior to you working there. I don't know. It just said that you were both in Tom's Lounge at the time. Um, and well, then you had seen her three days before at the across from the VA hospital, and that he had said, and it says specifically, and that she mentioned to you that had told her if if he can't have her, no one would. I mean, that's pretty specific. That's not like you know what I mean. Well, that's, and, and, and that's what I'm saying. That is specific. And I, you know, I don't remember. I don't. I don't recall his name. I didn't recall her name, but I, I, I know the instance now. Right, right, after we discuss it. And sometimes it takes and, a little uh, bit, but I would think in all this other, I mean, you've told me detail on other things. If you, if I would expect that you would remember that. You know what I mean? Like, if if that occurred, I would expect that you would remember it. Because yeah, you remember I mean, the I other stuff. Too, you know, I mean, yeah. I just, I don't think that there's going to be a couple things, especially like that. Right. I mean, I would, I, I. You know, I probably would have remembered that more than I would have, and know, that Anything else, yeah. <laughs> Did you know that she was married to uh, this girl, the one that got um, killed, that she was married to an inmate? Did you know this um, Charles Messer? No. That name doesn't ring a bell? Hmm. He was, she told me her husband was uh, in the Navy. Really? Huh. Did, did you find her to be, let me ask you this. Did you find her to be the type of person who, let's say a guy came in to rob the store, that she would fight them? Like, that's why they found the whole place, like, tore up? Like, do you think that she would, 
I mean, because let me just be honest. If it was me and someone came in with a gun, I would be like, take whatever you want. My hands would be in the air. I don't fucking care. Take take the cigarettes. You want some beer? Take that too. You know what I mean? Like, I would not fight. Do you think that she was the type of personality that she would fight them? Mm-hmm. You know, I think if anything I remember of her, maybe she was just quiet. She wasn't too, she wasn't outgoing, you know, I mean, she wasn't, but, you know, but like I said, you know, I, you know, other than, you know, I mean, I never took her out. We never dated. We never had sex. We never you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I mean, just I really a don't... casual acquaintance. That's it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I'd say just knowing her from the store. So and, nothing really uh, stood out. I mean, that tells me something. I mean, you saw her ca- casually here and there. It's not like she had such a flamboyant personality that anything stood out is basically what you're saying. I mean, there no, wasn't anything. Was, you know, just an average gal. Yeah. Well, that is helpful. And I don't want Did to you hear what this witness said? Now he's saying that he had never mentioned Darlene saying... George, the correction employee, had harassed her to the investigator at all. I'm not sure what to believe about that. As I told you at the outset, it's up to you to determine the credibility. I can only give you the information and let you decide. Stay tuned.